Welcome to the East City Wesleyan Church podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to learn more about East City Wesleyan Church, please go to ecw.org.nz for more information. Now, here's your podcast. Folks, you'll see the um, sermon notes and the outlook, the headings that I'll be directly working with today. So take a pen if you've got one there, that'll be good. Thank you, Josh, for the introduction to the series about what's the big deal, Uh, looking at issues that are very real about uh, being Christian, about what Christianity is about. So today, my uh, topic is, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? And I think the, the purpose of our new series can be found in a key verse in 1 Peter, where Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In fact, that's what we want to accomplish with the series. It's about each one of us being better equipped as Christians living in a very diverse world, often a very divisive world, uh, and we need to be able to share our faith with respect and with confidence. So this teaching series is about why trusting in the reliability of Scripture and affirming the Lordship of Jesus Christ makes good, solid sense the evidence supports such a conclusion. So this morning I want to tackle three common criticisms that people can voice about the Bible. Because these comments or these objections can stand in their way of being able to seriously consider the claims of Christianity. So let's jump right in three objections to the Bible's reliability. The first is, the Bible is full of contradictions. Have you heard that? If you believe what some people say, you'll get the idea that the Bible is full of contradictions, historical fabrications, and archaeological errors. The fact is that most people who tell you the Bible is full of contradictions cannot really name one. They just know that there are contradictions because they heard it somewhere or they read it on Google, but they never bothered to look into it themselves. One of my um, college lecturers told about sharing with a man who said to him, I don't believe the, the Bible, it's, it's full of mistakes. I think King James was drunk the day he wrote it. <laughs> now, that's, that's an objection not that easy to address. <laughs> where, where do you start? Now, some criticize the Bible because they know nothing about it. They're just repeating what they've heard. On the other hand, there are those who have studied the Scripture enough to know about problematic passages. And they can point out verses that seem to be in contradiction with other verses or in contradiction even with science. So let me share a rabbit illustration. Yes, a rabbit illustration. Some of you will know that we have a pet rabbit in our garden at home. One day, a person asked if I believe the Bible. 
or is the Bible the reliable word of God? And I said, yes. And he said, I prove, I can prove that it's not. And I said, oh, tell me how. And he said, rabbits don't chew the cud. And he's referring to a rather obscure verse in Leviticus. There it is, Leviticus 11.6 on the screen. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. Now, as it turns out, rabbits don't chew the cud. Though they engage in a chewing action <laughs> that resembles it. So this guy said, if the Bible's wrong about rabbits, it's wrong about the rest. And I said to him, are you telling me that you don't believe Jesus is the son of God because rabbits don't chew, chew the cud? <laughs> and he said, that's not the only mistake in the Bible. There are hundreds of them. Well, actually there aren't. And I asked him to point out some of the hundreds and he mentioned the time Jesus said to his disciples, everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. John 15, 15. Just a chapter later, in the same conversation with the same disciples, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you. So my skeptic friend said, which is it? Did he tell them everything or did he have much more to tell them? Can't he make up his mind? Another example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells how a woman should pray or prophesy in church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says women should keep silent in church. So my skeptic friend says, which is it? Are women supposed to speak or are they supposed to keep silent? Did Paul change his mind before he finished the letter to the Corinthians? Well, the truth is that these aren't really contradictions or anything like them. But if you pull a verse out of context or apply 21st century meanings to 1st century phrases, you can create inconsistencies that don't actually exist. So when you read the Bible, you have, you have to think. You have to ask yourself, what's it saying here? What's it saying? What's the context? And what does this really mean? So when a scientist discovers what appears to be a contradiction in science, he or she doesn't say, that's it, I'm out of here, science can't be true. Instead, they investigate the matter more closely in order to reconcile what they see in one context with what they know from another context. You with me? Actually, in the aviation world, uh, a similar reality prevails. The principles of aerodynamics do not contradict the law of gravity. So both laws work at the same time. Now, in the same way, many of the statements in the Bible, as well as many concepts in Christian doctrine, that may seem to be in contradiction with one another can be reconciled when you actually closely examine them. Okay? I've heard critics say that the, you know, the resurrection stories are fabrications because they're different, you know, one to another. Well, the question is, do they contradict each other or do they just emphasize different details? For example, you might 
be like me and find that uh, you can no longer rely on just one news source for a balanced view of what's happening in New Zealand or in the world. Not only the risk of fake news, but so much of our Kiwi media is very left-leaning, pro-government, and with an agenda that's often different to Christian values. So I read a variety of online news sources here and overseas, and sometimes the different approaches seem to indicate contradictions, but often it's just different emphases and perspective and conclusions, of course. So with regard to the Bible, there are reasonable explanations for so-called contradictions in Scripture. In fact, theologian Norman Giesler wrote a book called When Critics Ask, in which he examines, the whole book's about this, he examines and he resolves every supposed biblical contradiction. Now, what's amazing about the Bible is that time and again it's been proven to be accurate in areas in which the experts, the so-called experts, were sure that it was wrong. So there are thousands of archaeological finds in the the Middle East that support the geographical, the political, and the sociological descriptions found in the Old Testament. So for years, some scholars said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were legends. But evidence corroborating their existence has since been uncovered. The Bible refers to a people called the Hittites more than 30 times in the Old Testament. Critics used to say there's no evidence this people group ever existed. More recently, in the last 35 years, archaeologists in Turkey have discovered the records of the Hittites. Luke 1 refers to um, Licinius being the tetriarch of uh, Abilene in 27 AD. And scholars pointed to this verse and they said, this is proof that Luke uh, can't be trusted. Licinius was actually the ruler of Charles 50 years earlier. And then archaeologists discovered an inscription that names Licinius as the tetriarch of Abilene at the time Luke indicated. As it turns out, there are two government officials named Licinius, and Luke was right after all. So when it comes to questions about contradictions in the Bible, I would give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And I'm not saying you should ignore difficult passages and pretend they don't exist. I'm saying you should investigate them further with an an objective mind. The fact is, the Bible is a remarkable and amazing book, written over a period of 1,500 plus years by as many as 40 people from diverse social and economic backgrounds, and yet throughout all the 66 books, it tells the same salvation story of God and the human race. It teaches us how to live, how to love, how to know God, how to find happiness, and so on. So when you take a closer look at the Bible, it stops being an obstacle for faith, and it actually becomes a reason for faith. Here's another objection you might hear about the Bible. People say, well, 
it may be it may be historically and archaeologically accurate, but it demeans women and it promotes war and slavery. So what they're saying in effect is the Bible presents an unenlightened worldview. First of all, there's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible endorses. With me? For example, Peter denied Christ several times, didn't he? Just because the Bible reports that event doesn't mean that it recommends we do the same. The Bible makes reference to slaves and masters, but nowhere does it say that it's God's will for one human being to own another. As a matter of fact, Paul made a very radical statement in the book of Galatians when he said, you should learn this one off by heart if you don't know it already, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In both uh, England and the United States, the um, abolitionist movement was propelled by Christian people, some of them in America being early Wesleyans. In fact, in the 18th century, almost 100 years before slavery ended in the United States, John Wesley wrote these words. Had your father, have you, has any living man a right to use another as a slave? It cannot be. Liberty is the right of every human creature. As soon as he breathes vital air, as soon as he is born, and no human law can deprive him of that right when he derives from the, which he derives from the law of nature. So today slavery still exists, but not in countries that we would call predominantly Christian. In fact, slavery tends to be present in countries most noted for their oppression of Christianity. North Korea, Bangladesh, Sudan. And when Paul told um, slaves to be obedient to their masters, he, he wasn't condoning slavery. In fact, First Timothy 1, Paul equates slave traders with adulterers, perverts, and those who kill their parents. Slavery had always existed, and as far as Paul knew, since he wasn't all-knowing, it always would. And in biblical times, the entire world economy depended on slavery. If a businessman needed workers, he didn't advertise asking for interested applicants to submit their CV. He bought the labour he needed. That's how it was. Now, of course, that doesn't make slavery right. In fact, it's wrong, and we know that. But the early church didn't have the political or economic leverage to change it, so Paul instead introduced a radical and enlightened idea. He commanded masters to treat their slaves with respect. He said, Do not threaten them, since you know he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. As it turns out, the, the teachings of Paul planted the seed that resulted in our recognising every human's right for freedom. 
and that the same can be said uh, about the Bible's view of women. A few years ago, a, um, a women's rights organisation began putting notices in Gideon Bibles and hotel rooms inserted in the Bible that said, warning, this book condones the oppression of women. Just yesterday, I was reading in the New Zealand Herald, prominent feminist activist said, uh, there is so much there is so much that's bad about Christianity. Yesterday's paper. I bet she wouldn't be saying that about other world religions, especially Islam, would she? Now this makes me doubt that those involved uh, you know, in that Gideon protest or this woman in the Herald yesterday have actually read the Bible or understand it, uh, other than a few passages out of context. Because in the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul treated women with a, um, a sense of dignity and respect and equality that absolutely defy the cultural norm. And the cultural norm was that women were possessions just like slaves and just like cattle. A man could not be arrested for spousal abuse. He could divorce his wife for something as minor as burning his meal, but a woman could not divorce her husband for any reason. A woman could be executed for adultery while the man got away scot-free. Women were not allowed to testify in trials. Women weren't allowed to worship with men, nor were they allowed any position of prominence in local synagogues. So into this cultural norm comes Christianity, where Jesus treated women like they'd never been treated before. And he taught them, and as we see when he, he visited the home of, of Martha and Mary, he, he defined custom and in Mark 5 healed the woman who had been bleeding internally for many years. He, he defied custom and engaged a foreign woman in conversation in John chapter 4. In Luke 8 we see that he brought a, a woman into his inner circle and in Luke 13 he refers to woman as a daughter of Abraham. Men were sons of Abraham. There's no other reference to daughters of Abraham. Such a term coming from the very lips of Jesus would imply equal status with men. And Jesus used such a term, daughters of Abraham. In Luke 7, Jesus accepts anointing ministry from a sinful woman. And in Luke 10, sisters Mary and Martha offer Jesus hospitality which he accepts you know when he visits Bethany and, and we see the same sort of attitude right through the New Testament Mary Magdalene becomes a disciple and the very first witness to the resurrection Acts 18 refers to a married couple Priscilla and Aquila teaching the word of God to Apocalypse Acts 21 mentions four women who prophesied in Acts 2, Peter, quoting from the Old Testament, states that, uh, that God had promised to pour out his spirit and that your sons and your daughters uh, will prophesy. And we also see this attitude in the Apostle Paul, who in Romans 16 refers to Phoebe as a deaconess and refers to Priscilla as one of his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 4, he refers to Nympha in which house the local church met. And as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives instructions as to how a woman should pray and prophesy in church.
Now, these were significant steps for the role and status of women in society. Had it not been for the Christian church boldly proclaiming that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. The role of women might never have changed the way it has. You look at predominantly non-Christian cultures today. How are women treated? Is their status greater in Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan or Albania? No. In fact, in those countries, most women don't leave the house without a veil to cover their face. People who want to keep women in their place may quote some Bible verses out of context, but the overall teaching of Scripture is that men and women are equal in God's sight and should be treated equally and should minister equally. People who say that the Bible is an outdated book simply aren't familiar with it. Even though there are stories in, the ancient, uh, in this ancient book that do not reflect ancient cultural values and customs, we also find a theme running throughout its pages that all human beings deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. This is a, another reason why, instead of being an obstacle to faith, the Bible becomes a reason for it. A third objection about the Bible I've heard is the Bible commands me to do things that I don't want to do. Well, this is a case where the objection is absolutely right. (laughs) If you tell me the Bible is full of contradictions, I'll disagree with you. If you tell me the Bible presents an unenlightened worldview, I'll disagree with you too. And if you say, the Bible commands me to do things I don't want to do, I'll say you're absolutely right. The Bible challenges us to love people we might not find lovable. Amen. It challenges us to forgive people we might not want to forgive. It challenges us to abandon sin that we find quite enjoyable. It challenges us to do our jobs with integrity, even when the boss is unfair. It challenges us to keep our word, even when it hurts. Yes, the Bible commands us to do things we sometimes don't want to do. And the reason for this is not because God wants to take the the joy out of your life. It's because he wants to put joy into your life. God wants you to live to the fullest. In fact, that's exactly what he said. John 10.10, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. I discovered long ago that God knows more about joyful living than any one of us. I learned that the laws and principles of scripture are put there for a reason, that we might experience life in all its fullness. So some people ask, some people ask me, What's wrong with same-sex marriage? Or why should a couple who no longer love each other stay married? If both of them want out, why can't they just get a divorce? Or why should I forgive someone who's cheated me? Well, the reason for sexual purity, the reason for staying in a Christian marriage and working things out, the reason for forgiving those who have wronged you, 
And the reason for doing everything else God has commanded us to do is this simple. It's in our best interest to obey him. And this may sound self-serving, but it's not. A self-serving attitude is doing something that benefits you and no one else. When we obey God, everyone benefits. So we experience his joy. Others experience his love expressed through us. He gets the glory. So the partner of this objection that God commands me to do things I don't want to do can be this. I don't think I can do it. I can't live up to his standard. We've all wrestled with that, I'm sure. So on your, on your own, it's undoubtedly true. But God has promised to help you to give you his strength so that you can live the life he's called you to live. Scripture says so. So Paul said, For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. You're not on your own, in other words. And then we have the whole gift of the Holy Spirit. So John's Gospel, John says, I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Welcome, Holy Spirit. So even if it's something you, you don't want to do, even if it's a sin you don't want to give up, God gives you the desire to do right and Holy Spirit power to do right. Well, folks, you know, over the centuries, now more than about 1,800 years since the Bible was completed, it's been misrepresented and misused to justify all kinds of inappropriate and sometimes evil action. The only correct response to this is to know what the Bible reliably says, what it really means, what it really teaches, rather than just taking the word of a skeptic whose knowledge is more than likely just secondhand. And I'm saying that before people dismiss the Bible, they need to make sure they know it, they need to study it. And you need to listen to what a wide spectrum of scholars say about it, rather than just a few who happen to support your preconceived ideas. The fact is that the Bible sets a high standard for us to live by, and it challenges us to make some tough decisions along the way, and in return it shows us the way to experience a quality of living and loving that is otherwise not possible. So some of the obstacles that people have to the Christian faith are obstacles of intellect, and others are uh, obstacles of the heart. So God really has the answer to both. And if you have intellectual questions about the Bible, it can withstand your scrutiny. Or if you say, I accept the fact that the Bible is authoritative, but I'm still not sure that I'm willing to follow it, God can help you there too. God can change any heart that's given to him. So don't let a misunderstanding of the Bible or a misunderstanding of Christianity stand in the way of experiencing the gift that God has offered for you 
life in all its fullness. As the scripture says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May it be so. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you that we have the scriptures, the Bible, in such a readily available form today. Many different translations and resources with the various versions. And we acknowledge that over the years many people have not had ready and easy access to the word of God as we do. Help us not to be complacent, but to be diligent about reading and studying because the issues, the challenges, the matters that are wrestled with in the scriptures uh, are matters that relate directly to this very life here today. So help us, God, that to read the scripture and to enable it to minister to us because we know it is, it is God-breathed and useful for our, for our teaching and encouragement so that we may be strengthened in our faith. Lord, that's our prayer today. So thank you for the gift of scripture and all that it means to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.